Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity. In addition, I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Clinic here in Stratford-upon-Avon. Today I'm very excited and honoured actually to have with me someone called Nick Panay who many of you might hopefully have heard of and I always think of him as the king of the menopause. So welcome Nick to my podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me Louise. It's a great pleasure and honour for me to be with you tonight. Oh, so some of you might know I haven't always done menopause as a full-time career. I started off doing hospital medicine and then went into general practice. And in 2015, when the NICE, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence Guidelines, came out in the menopause, it really sparked an interest with me because it sort of helped confirm how safe HRT was. And I went to various conferences, went on various lectures, did lots of self-directed learning. But I really wanted to get some hands-on experience. So as a crazy menopausal woman myself, I wrote to Nick as an email and said, can I sit in your clinic? And I was absolutely gobsmacked when he said yes. So I went one summer, I think probably in 2016, and sat in his clinic. And I know that I pestered him and asked lots of questions and I could see his inbox getting busier and fuller. And all he wanted to do was try and answer some of his emails in between patients. And all I wanted to do was pick his brains. And since that time, Nick's been a really good mentor to me and has always helped, I think, sort of protect me and looked after me a bit in various difficult times that I've had. So I'm really grateful that you allowed me that day of sitting in your clinic. So thank you. So tell me about your background, because your background and my background are very different. We're different in lots of ways. Firstly, obviously, people know that I'm female and you're male. <laughs> I've been called an honorary female. <laughs> well, yeah. By Claudine Dominey. So I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but your background is not hospital. You weren't a hospital physician and you weren't a GP, were you? So talk through your background to how you became a menopause specialist. Well, I trained as a gynaecologist, obstetrician mm. and gynaecologist. And what really spiked my interest in women's health, menopause, and also premenstrual syndrome was when I did research with Professor John Studd at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And John, as you know, has been a pioneer in both those conditions and set up you know, one of the first menopause clinics in the world in Birmingham. And yeah, I did some research into... I know it's a topic that you're particularly interested in, intolerance to the effects of progesterone, mm. which still challenge a lot of our women uh, using hormone therapy, and found ways in which we could minimize progesterone intolerance by using lower doses, shorter courses, by using intrauterine systems, so like Marina, for instance, mm. where the progesterone is delivered locally, and also looking at more natural types of progesterone, like micronized progesterone and digesterone, which mimic more closely women's natural hormones. And so I've applied those principles over the years, and I think it stood me in good stead in terms of managing my women with menopause-related problems and difficulties in finding sort of HRT that suits them. And I know that you've applied a lot of those principles mm. as well in your practice. And then uh, after doing research with John, 
did subspecialty training in reproductive medicine because in those days it was very difficult and it still is actually to get a job in menopause as a mm. consultant so I trained at Barts and the Royal London in doing fertility as well as menopause and other aspects of hormones if you like gynecological endocrinology and then in 2001 I was appointed at Queen Charlotte's and Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and I got a combined post doing both obstetrics and gynecology uh, and whilst I enjoyed the obstetrics there was an awful lot of after hours work more babies being born at night than during the day of course so it was fun but tiring and so in 2000 seven, I then went over to just doing gynecology and really started then to focus on menopause research projects and also training and both at Queen Charlotte's and my subsequent appointment at Chelsea and Westminster at Imperial College London. We've been training people as you have at all levels, medical students, GPs, postgraduates in gynecology, consultants from the UK and abroad, and also pharmacists as well. We have a pharmacist working with us. And until recently, we had a psychologist working as an integral part of our multidisciplinary team. So what do I do with myself now? I teach a lot, as you do. I've got an active research program. I've got a fantastic team of doctors, including gynecologists, GPs, nurses, who help me and support me in the work that I do. And as you know, COVID's been a real challenge and a steep learning curve to go online and keep delivering the educational programs that we're giving to both healthcare professionals and also to women in general. But um, as you are, I'm, I'm driven and passionate about this field. I feel that there's a huge unmet need still. And I think the most frustrating thing is fitting in two pints into a pint pot. How do you find enough hours in the day to give the due care and attention that this mm. specialty needs. So that forever is challenging me. But as you have, I think the way to do it is to train people short of cloning oneself. And hopefully they will continue your, your legacy, both clinically, educationally, and also from the research perspective. Mm. And it's so important, isn't it? And I have a bit of a sin to confess here, actually, Nick, because when I sat in your clinic, I remember saying to you, how do you know when to start HRT? It's all very well if someone's had their ovaries removed. Obviously, it's very obvious they've gone into menopause as soon as they've had the operation. Or if someone comes and they tell you their last period was more than a year ago, then it's quite obvious. But what about these perimenopausal women, these women who are having periods but start to get menopausal symptoms? And I remember saying to you, how do you really know? Because in general practice, because I'd not had you know, much training, no one talked to us about the perimenopause. And I remember you saying it's still quite obvious, Louise, often the women know. And I thought, oh, okay, didn't really think much more of it. And then about three months later, I started to develop some symptoms. And I thought it was because I was working too hard developing websites and setting up clinic, various things. And I found it really difficult to remember, really difficult to function. I was getting back to back migraines, muscle joint pains, just no sleep, waking up in all hours. And I was getting night sweats. So I, you would have thought that I would have cottoned on them. But I actually thought I had a lymphoma, a type of cancer, because as a doctor, you always think something awful is happening to you. And it took me about five months, actually, to then realise what was going on, which now it just seems ridiculous. But then actually, I couldn't get HRT from my GP and my GP refused to prescribe it, only give me antidepressants. 
So I wanted to come and see you because I knew you would be able to help me. And I don't know if you know, I phoned your secretary who said, well, he's got an appointment, but it's not for another five months. And I was really rude to your secretary. I have since apologised. But I said, do you know who I am? I sat in his clinic a few months ago and she said, well, he has lots of people sitting in his clinics. I said, no, but I'm really struggling. I'm going to have to give up my job. He has to help me. I really don't know what else I can do. And I said, forget it. I'm going to email him. And I slammed the phone down, which is not so rude. And then you very, very graciously said, Louise, I'll talk to you. It's fine. So we had an appointment a couple of weeks later and you made it at nine o'clock on a Wednesday morning. And I was with my daughter. And at 10 to nine, I said to her, Jessica, in 10 minutes time, I've got to make this really important phone call. So you'll just have to sort yourself out or whatever. She said, yeah, that's fine, fine. At five past nine, you phoned me. I don't know if you remember, you phoned me on my phone and said, Louise, you were going to phone me. And I had completely forgotten. And that's how bad my brain was. I just could not remember. And I was horrified, firstly, because it's so rude that I was late for you. But secondly, it made me really realise that I was really, really struggling with the way my brain was working. And I hadn't realised quite how bad it was. And I know you've heard similar stories from women in your clinic, but the power of hormones in females' brains is huge, isn't it? And I think sometimes Mm. unrecognised and sometimes missed actually not just in women but in other healthcare professionals as well oh totally and uh, as you know majority of women their symptoms start before their periods have Mm. stopped and so it's frustrating that if you were prescribing to license with hrt you couldn't prescribe for at least six months after the periods had stopped i have no qualms about prescribing to women who have regular periods if Mm. i think they'll benefit not just if they're menopause symptoms, but if they're cycle-related symptoms. And what really the body is responding to is the cyclic changes in hormone levels, which are impacting particularly in terms of the emotional and cognitive problems on the neurotransmitters in the brain. So as estrogen levels drop, that leads to fallen serotonin levels. In women who are progesterone intolerant, as progesterone levels rise, the increase in stimulation of the GABA receptors in the brain can lead to depressive symptoms. And these symptoms can occur independently of hot flushes and sweats. Although there's some really interesting work at the moment looking at the genetics of the genesis of PMS, PMDD symptoms, and menopause symptoms, showing that the genes that code for these symptoms are co-located. And we know that women who suffer with more premenstrual syndrome and postnatal depression also suffer more with menopause-related symptoms as well. So I suppose the principle of what we're doing when we're using hormone therapy before the periods have stopped completely is that we're stabilizing hormone levels rather than replacing hormones Mm. that are absent. And I suppose that's the key difference, isn't it? Yeah, and it shouldn't really be called HRT hormone replacement therapy, should it? So for a lot of women who start when they've still got their own hormones, it's just topping up as opposed to replacing, isn't it? Yes, I call it hormonal balancing rather than replacement. And in fact, the uh, International Menopause Society has coined the term menopause hormone therapy which you know doesn't have the word replacement in it. True replacement of hormones actually only really occurs for women who have premature menopause or premature ovarian insufficiency, as we call it, or early menopause, where you're putting back hormones that would have naturally been there, at least until the average age of the menopause, which is 51. And as you know, premature ovarian insufficiency is a condition I feel particularly passionate about mm. because you know we talk about natural menopause 
being poorly diagnosed and poorly managed. This is a condition, POI, that's even worse in terms of its diagnosis and management and resource. But it's very encouraging that we have been given a grant recently, collaborative group in the UK, to study the pill versus hormone therapy in women with premature ovarian insufficiency. And that's headed up by Melanie Davis at University College London and a number of us collaborating with that study. So we should get some answers in terms of the impact on quality of life and also protecting, as you know, heart, bones, brain, etc. All of these things which are even more severely affected in women with POI. Absolutely. And about one in 100 women in the UK under the age of 40 have POI, don't they? And certainly when I was in general practice, there was no way we had that number diagnosed. And that wasn't because it was an unusual area where I worked. It was because people weren't picking it up. And, um, Mm. you know, when I was at medical school, I was taught if a woman has a period of time without her periods, just make sure she's not pregnant. If she's not pregnant, don't worry about it. And that's completely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Because like you say, it's the health risks of not having these hormones is so huge. So the IMS, the International Menopause Society that you mentioned, you've got a big involvement in that and it's soon to be even more involvement. So tell me a bit about that, Nick. Well, my relationship with the IMS goes back to the mid-90s when I took over the co-editorship-in-chief of Climacteric, which is the International Menopause Society journal, with Anna Fenton. So for a decade, we were co-editors-in-chief of this journal which I think, again, fantastic outreach to the four corners of the globe and really helps to promote the evidence-based practice of the diagnosis and management of menopause. I then joined the board of IMS and I was promoted to general secretary and now I'm president-elect of the International Menopause Society. And the vision that I have and the mission that IMS has is to provide education for women and healthcare professionals around the world in order to empower women to be able to seek the help that they need and deserve for menopause that troubles them, but also to empower healthcare professionals and educate healthcare professionals to treat women and not be scared of hormone therapy, Mm -hmm. and also to be able to counsel women not just about hormone therapy, but all aspects of menopause management, lifestyle, diet, exercise, supplementary therapies, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can truly individualize management for every woman. And also to make it more, if you like, region specific. So you know, we've been educating in Latin America, in India, in Russia. We've produced, as well as the webinars that you've been involved with, and thank you very much. Yours on COVID was fantastic. We've also produced a slide set where many thousands of healthcare providers have signed up to learn about menopause called the IMPART program. So really, it's about getting that information out there. And and IMS has a responsibility for doing that globally. So it's another area of passion of mine that I hope to be able to influence, particularly when I'm president. So... A lot of healthcare professionals are scared of HRT, aren't they? And I think it's not their fault, actually. It's just because all their training, all their mentors, all their peers have scared them away from HRT for often the wrong reasons, haven't they? Yes, as you know, it's the minority of women who are using hormone therapy. Many women find it very difficult to access not just hormone therapy, but sensible advice about menopause. 
And I know that you've been training and, you know, the programs that you've instituted, your menopause charity, the app, et cetera, you're providing all of that support and education. And my work through the international and also the British Menopause Society as chair and now as a trainer, menopause trainer for GPs, we're trying to put it educationally on the map and also working with the Department of Health to try and get it properly resourced. We've just submitted evidence to the Department of Health for their women's health strategy, which hopefully will make a difference and hopefully it will have teeth and money behind it. But Mm. I think the important thing is getting the dialogue going so that women can have access to appropriately resourced menopause care. Yeah, and I think it's a real problem, actually, because I was reading some articles last night from the British Medical Journal, just talking about burnouts, actually, with COVID in primary care, and about how many doctors now want to take early retirement, they want to leave, or they want to go part time, and not just doctors, nurses as well, and other healthcare professionals. And then when you suddenly say to them, right, we want you to treat menopause as well, A lot of them are really pushing back and saying we can't do it. But actually, and I'm sure you'll agree, if women who are menopausal get the right treatment, they actually don't go to their doctors as much because for a start, they don't have symptoms or they're less likely to have symptoms. So symptoms like palpitations, which are leading to cardiology appointments or migraines leading to neurology Mm. appointments, that will really reduce. So actually to invest in a bit of time in that first perimenopausal menopausal consultation is not just investing in their woman's future health, but it's actually saving money and time in the healthcare, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a public health issue, Louise. I keep saying you spend a little money now, you save a lot of money in the Mm. future. Because as you say, you then reduce the number of unnecessary appointments. You reduce the huge expenditure required for dealing with osteoporosis-related fractures with cardiovascular disease, with dementia-related issues. And it is frustrating that, you know, what we need is a good preventive strategy rather than a responsive strategy. Mm -hmm. But I think we're still too reactive rather than proactive in how we manage these situations. We were speaking earlier that in 2010, 2011, in response to the government's white paper, We proposed then that there should be a menopause check, a menopause chat, Mm -hmm. where every woman has the opportunity to go to the GP to talk about lifestyle, diet, exercise, hormonal options and alternatives. And of course, the concern then, as it is now, is, well, how stressed, tired GPs who not only have to be a jack of all trades and now have COVID to deal with as well, how are they going to be able to implement this? And the only way this can be implemented is through appropriate resourcing through the Department of Health, where money is spent on training more doctors, training doctors in menopause specifically, and having it as a key part of the curriculum, both undergraduate and postgraduate, and also in research, because we know that HRT is treated as one preparation with one class effect. And we know that there are many different types of hormone therapy. And if you use the right type of hormone therapy in the right woman, you get a much better outcome than you do using the wrong therapy in the wrong woman for the wrong indication, which is what's happened in some of the previous studies that have been done. Absolutely. And I I actually remember listening to a presentation you gave at a conference for a GP journal actually called Pulse. It was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, so a long time before NICE came out. 
and you started talking about body identical hormones and the natural micronized progesterone and ways of changing if someone's progesterone intolerant. And I remember just sitting bolt upright and thinking, goodness, this makes so much sense, actually. This man is really talking sense. And, you know, they are completely different drugs. They work very differently. And then you start thinking about all the contraceptives containing the synthetic progesterone that have been given to women, quite rightly, for contraceptive purposes. Mm. And, you know, lots of us have children that have tried one or two or three or maybe four different combined oral contraceptives. And often it is the progesterone having this effect. And it's, mm. you know, these poor teenagers are blamed for being moody. And don't get me wrong, they can be. But often the hormones are affecting them, aren't they? Yes. And then, as you quite rightly said, you know, PMS is really under-resourced, isn't it? And it's so much more. I remember sitting in, before I sat in your clinic, I also had the privilege of sitting in uh, Professor John Studd clinic. And I remember he gave someone some estrogen gel, a lady who was in her 20s who had really bad PMS. And for one week out of four, she couldn't go out, she couldn't work, she was really struggling. And he gave her the gel. And when she left, I said, oh, gosh, I've never done that in my practice. And he said, well, Louise, it's just topping up the hormone she's missing. And I said, but Mm. we've always been taught in general practice, you should give these people antidepressants, even just for short, you know, one or two weeks a month. And he said, but that's just sticking a plaster on it. I don't see the sense. And ever since then, I've done exactly the same because I think, well, there's no harm. And these women come back and not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them do, don't they? Because you're just giving them what they're missing. I think it's about the life course approach. And Mm. I think it's great that finally menopause is on the educational curriculum in schools. We need to have menstrual disorders there and PMS. And with PMS, we know that these problems start in school children. I see numerous teenage children who come to our clinics who have been misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder or psychoses and actually have cycle-related symptoms. And as soon as you balance their hormones, miraculously, they start doing much better mm-hmm. in school and, and achieving and not being a handful for their families, etc. And then it's about using the right types of hormones. We know that if you use the wrong type of pill, as it is with the wrong type of HRT, that the progestogens can give them PMS-type progestogenic mm-hmm. side effects. We also know that in somebody with cycle-related symptoms, if they have a a seven-day interval with their pill, that will allow regeneration of their PMS symptoms. And so these women should be treated with back-to-back pill Mm. regimens as much as possible. And it is about tailor-making. I find it really frustrating that we keep doing these retrospective data trials because they're easier, they're cheaper than doing long-term prospective randomized trials of new hormonal options that we know from your considerable observational data that we have appeared to behave much better in term- metabolically from the breast perspective, mm. from the psychological perspective, et cetera, et cetera. And yet we keep doing these data trials and surprise, surprise, we're finding problems. We've moved on. We're not using the hormones yes. that we used to use 20 or 30 years ago. Now, let's do some studies looking at that and not just keep looking at breast cancer. Let's look at the woman as a whole. And yes, look at breast cancer as an outcome. But let's look at her quality of life aspects in more detail. Let's look at bones, heart, brain, the immune system, which is so fascinating in terms of particularly now with COVID as well, understanding that 
we know that oestrogen can have a beneficial effect from that perspective. So we need more research looking at how we can bolster the immune system to try and mitigate the effects of future pandemics. It's so important, but it's so frustrating, isn't it? And I think the other thing is the um, when this podcast released, they will have done the nice guidance in shared decision making. And for me, as a woman who had been refused HRT, actually, I feel very strongly it's about my choice. The whole risk of breast cancer, people can argue till they're blue in the face, but it's still not high, even when you look at the highest figures. But it is offset for a lot of women by the benefits. And like you say, you know, my risk of osteoporosis without taking hormones is far greater than my risk of breast cancer. And actually, the prognosis following an osteoporotic hip fracture is far worse for a lot of women in the first year than the prognosis following a diagnosis of breast cancer. But it's an individual choice. So I think what you're saying is absolutely right. And it's also about holistic approach. And I recently did a survey of 5,000 women and found that only 24% had been given any information about lifestyle. And, you know, it's so important that we're looking at ways of helping our heart, our brain, our bones in what we eat, the way we sleep, the way we exercise, everything else as well. And so I think having this reach where we can reach as many women as possible to educate them for themselves, because I really feel women need to be empowered, but it has to be matched up with their healthcare professionals' education as well, doesn't it? So then the women can actually receive what they want. And, you know, I'm sure you agree, neither of us are here to be didactic and say every woman has to do this, have this, make this choice, because we're all different. And that's really important as physicians and healthcare professionals. We recognise and acknowledge that. But I think we should take in a woman's choice and respect her wishes, whether we agree with them or not. It's the same in all walks of medicine, isn't it? Oh, totally. I mean, it's about giving women the correct information to empower them to make the choice that's right for them. Mm. That's what I believe passionately. You know, we, you and I, are busy training GPs, and you know, we've got our new course, which is Principles and Practices of Menopause Care through the British Menopause Society. But it takes time, and uh, you know, we're training hundreds. We need to train thousands, mm. and that's where. You know, we need to appeal to the Royal College of GPs, to Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to expand their curriculum in menopause training. And that way we will start to make a difference and give women you know, the information that they need to make these choices. Mm, absolutely. So there's a huge amount of work to do. And I think we can all only do it by working together and you know the more people that have the knowledge the better future health for women will be which will be amazing absolutely so thank you so much for your time nick before i end i always do three take-home tips which i didn't warn you about before i'm sorry but um if you wouldn't mind just giving me three key things that you would like to achieve when you're president of the ims i would first of all like to ensure that women globally have ease of access to information on menopause. Secondly, we do need to update our recommendations on hormone therapy and menopause care and make it applicable globally to all healthcare professionals. And thirdly, and this is my big mission, raison d'etre, if you like, is to try and get funding for that definitive study that I still think we need to do. And we may need to go cap in hand to the WHO 
obviously now is probably not the best time, but uh, as you know, we come out of this pandemic to look at the best way to treat menopause with the best preparations, which will have all the benefits and no side effects and risks. And that is the holy grail. Absolutely. Well, there's no harm trying. Absolutely. Yeah, it'd be brilliant. So thank you ever so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Nick. And I look forward to seeing what the future the IMS has for us women out here. So thank you. Thank you, Louise. It's been a great pleasure. For more information about the perimenopause and menopause, you can go to my website, menopausedoctor.co.uk, or you can download our free app called Balance, available through the App Store and Google Play.